0: I was thinking back about 30 years ago when Denise and I first got married, we were childless at that time. We were just two young newlyweds in love, dreaming about the rest of our life. And I'll never forget, we went to a Target one day and we're waiting to check out and in front of us was a mom and her preschool son. Little boy couldn't have been older than three years old, and we're standing in line, and all of a sudden, this little boy throws the temper tantrum of all temper tantrums. It was a meltdown like one I've never seen before. He's laying on the ground. He's banging his fists. He's stomping his feet. I mean, he is total meltdown. And I said those famous last words. Remember, I'm a newlywed. We've talked about having kids. We've dreamed about having kids. We've never had kids of our own. And what do you think those famous last words that came out of my mouth were? My son will never act like that in public, right? Um, Then I had kids and learned, that's a whole nother story in there. But what I didn't realize there as this young guy, young man is I, I was just measuring and weighing and judging that child and his mom on that moment. Like, I'm looking going, Mom, you need to train that kid better. I'm looking at this three-year-old boy thinking, you need to act better. I had no idea the last two or three hours prior to that. Probably the little boy didn't have breakfast, didn't have lunch. His mom had carried him around. He was ready for his nap. There was a lot going on before that to cause that meltdown. Well, today, we're going to talk about meltdowns. Not preschoolers, not your kids, not my kids. We're going to talk about the meltdown that our character that we've been studying, um, Elijah the prophet, he has a major meltdown in the middle of all that God's doing in his life. You know, if you're just now joining us, let me kind of catch you up. We started this series called Elijah the prophet three weeks ago. And we, we've lear- what we've learned is this, is Elijah is an amazing man of God, that he had powerful prayers. In fact, one of the reasons that we're studying Elijah is we're trying to learn ourselves how do we have prayers as powerful as his. Because we've learned in there that he walked into King Ahab one day, the king of Israel, and said, guess what? It's not going to rain for a very long time. And it didn't rain for three and a half years after Elijah had prayed for it not to reign and the Bible says this in the book of James that Elijah this powerful prayer man of God was human just like you and I and so what we're trying to discover together as we study the book of, um, of first Kings and the story of Elijah is how do you and I have powerful prayers just like Elijah did And as we've been reading it, I can see the eyes open and minds just kind of light up and we're learning all these things. Yet today, unexpectedly, if you've never read the story of Elijah, you will see the story of a three-year-old boy in line at Target throwing the biggest fit that you've ever seen before. So do with me or go with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 and let me give you a little background of what's going on and then we'll kind of talk about this meltdown a little bit. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse one, it says this, when Ahab got home and just kind of catch up to speed, remember Ahab is the king. They had just left Mount Carmel, had this big spiritual, big physical fight going on between Elijah and Yahweh God and King Ahab and all the prophets and priests and the gods of, of Baal and Asherah and this big giant fight right in the middle of the battle of Carmel. Or, or the Mount Carmel. And in that battle, it was very obvious that Elijah and God, Yahweh God, had won that fight. And so we pick up where Ahab's going home to talk to his wife Jezebel about the results of the fight. It says, when Ahab got home, he, looked, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. So when Jezebel found out that once the the fire came down and consumed that altar, the bull on the altar there, that Elijah had commanded that all the prophets and priests of Baal, Baal and Asherah be killed, when she found this out, she was angry. She was furious. And she sent this message to Elijah and says, by tomorrow, you will be as dead as all those prophets and priests that you had killed. And then she goes on, or the story goes on in verse three, Elijah was afraid He was afraid, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then in verse 4, then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and he sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die this is the beginning of the fit this is the beginning of the meltdown and what we're going to discover is that elijah left everybody behind him behind him he was scared for his life Went way out in the wilderness and sat down at a tree and he prayed this lord i have had enough take my life for i am no better than my ancestors who have already died now i'm not sure he exemplified completely that three-year-old at Target. I don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us that he laid down and pounded his fist and kicked his feet and did a big wah, 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 but really his attitude right there was that of a three-year-old having a meltdown. For three and a half years, he had lived this life of great faith. For three and a half years, he had trusted God and seen miraculous things happen. He had seen the raven feed him for a year and a half, nothing but bread and drinking the water of the brook. And then when God sent him on to Zarephath, he saw that the widow woman took care of him and she only had enough food to make one cake, but yet that, that oil and that flour never ran out. So for three and a half years, Elijah had seen the provisions of God. For three and a half years, he had seen God just stop the world and make everything just stop for for Elijah and take completely care of him. Yet, when he found out that Jezebel was going to try to kill him, the Bible says he became fearful. He ran, hid underneath a tree, and threw the fit right there. So here's my question that I've asked as I read this. What transpired from the time all those miracles are taking place to all these provisions of God to all of a sudden it seems and looks and appears like Elijah is no longer relying on God, that he took his trust out of God's hand and he began putting the trust in his own hands. So what was it that caused this emotional meltdown in the life of Elijah? Elijah. It seems like he should have been on the top of the world, right? I mean, he had just seen this mighty battle at Mount Carmel. He should have been standing up with his just chest really tight and broad and going, my God is so big. He should have been standing on top of the world. Yet as we read this, he's wanting to be buried six feet underneath the world. He was ready to die. He was indeed like a preschooler. So how did he get this place? here's what i think it is he has learned the rhythm of prayer that we've learned over the last three weeks and we've learned three different kind of what i call the beats in the rhythm there's first the request that when we have a god-centered life we learn that our our prayers become god-centered and so that's the type of request that we should have before god that's exactly what elijah did and then elijah learned actually taught us after the request comes the wait That many times, once we pray for things, God doesn't answer them immediately in our life. And not because he's busy doing something else. Not because he's not interested in what we want. Many times, God has us wait because he's trying to deepen our faith. So in the life of Elijah he went through the request, a God-centered prayer request. He went through the wait, God deepening his faith. And the third thing, he went through the fight. The fight that we saw last week was more than just a physical battle on the battlefield of Mount Carmel. It was really the fight that other hearts, the Israelites' hearts, would be completely God-centered. But there's a fourth piece, piece, a fourth beat in what I call the rhythm of prayer that at this point, Elijah misses. In fact, I think it's the part of prayer, the part of the rhythm of prayer, that you and I miss, and that's the reason we sometimes throw our hands up, going, "God, how come my prayers aren't the, like the the prayers of Elijah in the Bible? How come God, when I pray and ask you things, it looks like you never answer them?" There's this fourth part of the rhythm of prayer that, just like Elijah, I think you and I miss too many times. In the fourth part, if you're taking notes and you can write this down, it is not the request, not the wait not the fight, but we miss the rest, the rest. You see, here's what happens in our life. We get so spiritually caught up following God, doing what God wants us to, trying to like move the needle and doing all that we should be in our spiritual life. And we get so busy. We often take all that pressure from what we're trying to do with and for God. And we begin to put it on our own shoulders and we get worn out. Have you ever woken up, not out of bed from a nap, but just out of life going, God, I don't think I can go on much further. I don't think I can keep doing what you want me. Not that you're ready to lay down and die like Elijah was saying, but you're just physically and emotionally and even spiritually exhausted for all that's going on. And the reason we find ourselves that place and the reason Elijah found himself that place and he was throwing his hands up going, God, I can't go on anymore is because we're missing the rest that God intends for us to have. Now, when I talk about rest, I'm not talking about sleep. Here's how I would define sleep. Sleep is closing your eyes to allow your body to recharge. But when I use the word rest, I'm using this definition. It's pausing your life to remind you you're not God. If you're filling in blanks, that's the first fill in the blank right there. Rest is pausing your life to be reminded that you're not God. Let's go back to Elijah for a second. Think of everything that he's gone through on the weeks and months and years prior to this. He had experienced internal conflict. That internal conflict took place when he was looking at the nation of Israel and saw them one by one and tribe by tribe and family by family begin to take their heart and hand it over to the Baal gods. They began to take their allegiance and hand it over to the Ashtaroth gods. And so he saw their hearts become divided and not totally loving God holistically. And so there's this internal conflict that he felt. And from there, then he had conflict with and he confronted authority. Now, we think how big and brave it was to walk into the king, King Ahab, and announce that it's not going to rain. But he had to put his own life on the line for that. So it had to take a certain amount of just emotional energy to even feel the strength to go approach the king. And after that, we talked about it. He went to the, to the brook, Carith. And for a year and a half, yes, God took care of him. for The ravens bring him food and the water is in the brook. But he f- discovered and experienced isolation and loneliness for a year and a half. Think back during COVID, what we what we just all cry out. We're ready to see people. We're ready, ready to go to a restaurant and be with people. We're ready to go to church and be with people. Many of us couldn't even see our own families during that time. So that isolationism, that loneliness can just drive you to be completely depleted in your life. But it didn't stop there for Elijah. He carried the burden after that, that he went to live with the widow woman. Here they were living day by day, just trusting God would bring the oil and the flour every day. And all of a sudden her son dies. So Elijah experienced the, the, the grief of death, but then the exhilaration of life all within a matter of months right there together. And so Elijah for this three and a half years had carried this burden, this spiritual burden of leading, following and trusting God. You probably know what that burden's like, don't you? Maybe it's not with a raven, maybe it's not with a child that went to die and came back to life, but you probably feel that same burden in your life. Many of you are just concerned about your health and you carry that burden with you all the time. Maybe it's not your health, it's a loved one's health, but you feel that not knowing what tomorrow or the next week or the next month will bring in that person's life. Maybe it's not health that you're carrying the burden. Maybe it's just over a family member and their choices whether it's a grown child or a sister or a brother or a relative, you look at their choices and you know that's not the design of God and what they're choosing to do and you carry the burden. But unlike a three-year-old that you could spank their bottom and send them to the room until they act right, there's really nothing you can do except for sit there and watch and hope and pray. Yet, even though there's nothing you can do, When you have a loved one or a friend or someone in that situation, you carry the burden of worrying about what's going to happen to them with the choices they make in their life. Other burdens that we carry, grief. Maybe your grief is you buried somebody last week, or maybe it was last year, maybe it was five years ago, but not a day goes by that you don't feel the sadness. And you wake up, and there is just this weight that's on you. Because of the sadness and grief that you're feeling over a lost loved one. It could be financial situations. It could go on and on. It could be just thinking about your future. But yet we all carry that burden. And here's what I've realized. When it comes to carrying burdens, most people go through a cycle. Especially those that are trying to follow God and trust God. There's this, this norm they go through in their, in their grief. And, or not in their grief, but rather just in the, how they're carrying the burdens. And here's how the cycle works. First, they pray. You and I pray. God, here it is. And it's like this, this spiritual handoff going, God, I can't take my grief any longer. God, I can't take my broken heart any longer. God, I can't take this worry from my loved one any longer. So God, I give it to you. So stage one is simply just praying and giving it to God. And then somewhere along the way there, the second stage says this. The second part of the cycle says this, that we begin to partner with God. Not that we're taking it back from God, but you recognize that God has a specific place, a specific role that you play in what he's doing in your life. And so even though you give it to him, he's going to come alongside me and I will carry the burden, but you'll walk alongside me with it. But here's the third phase of that cycle that many, many people go through when it comes to burdens. They pray, they partner, but then they pry it away from God because we get tired of waiting so long for the answer that we want. We think God must be busy for something else. And we're just like, God, I, I can't wait on you. This is not the answer I want. This is not turning out the way that I want. And so we basically just take it away from God. We may never use those words, God's, it's mine, not yours. But in the way we live and the way we believe and the way we think, we begin to pry it and take control of the situation back from God. And so many times when it comes to burdens that we face, that we go through that cycle and just like Elijah, prize it back from God and we put it on our own shoulders and we try to carry it and one day we just wake up going, God, I cannot carry this anymore. This is too heavy. And we don't point the finger at God, but yet in our emotions like, God, you could have done this different. You could have chose a different way, God. And we sit down in our own spiritual life and our own private way and just like Elijah underneath the tree, we have a meltdown. And we're just going, God, I can't do this anymore. You see, since the creation of man, God has known there's a temptation for you and I to try to take his place. Let's go back all the ways to the creation of the world. First day, second day, third day, God's creating the world. He brings man in part of it. Adam's there with him. What happens on the seventh day? God goes, Hey Adam. We're going to take seventh day off. We're going to rest on this seventh day. Now think about this for a second. Did God actually need to rest? I don't think so. I don't think God gets tired. And in fact, it was God who was doing all the creating. So if you look at the story, I don't even think Adam needed to rest. He hadn't done that much work at this point. So we have to ask the question, why in the beginning of time did God look at Adam and say, on the seventh day, we're going to rest? Here's why I think it is. It wasn't the physical rest that he needed, but God was trying to show and illustrate to Adam and trying to show and illustrate to you and I that he is God and we are not. You see, there's a tendency probably of Adam. And the reason I say this, because it's a tendency of ourselves in our own life that I can't sit still because I got to do, do, do. I got to make, make, make. I got to work, work, work. Because if I sit and get still, the world won't exist any longer if I'm not doing anything. And God looked at Adam going, hey, today we're going to do nothing. But the world will continue to work in the way it's supposed to because, Adam, I'm God and you're not. And so, Adam, the reason I'm making you stop, the reason I'm making you rest, the reason I'm saying we're not creating today because I need you to take your hands off everything and just watch it exist without you. And when you take your hands off everything, you will be reminded that you are not God and I am. So since the beginning of time, God has designed us. God has created us. God has made us to rest. Yes, to sleep and close your eyes and let your body recharge. But even more than that, he has designed us to rest and step back and recognize that he is God and we are not. You see, second point says this, that God rest. I'm sorry, rest allows us to refocus our lives to become God-centered. That's what was taking place with Adam. That's what was taking place with Eve. But it didn't stop there. Even Jesus knew the necessary, knew it was necessary for you and I to rest In Mark chapter six, the Bible records that after spending several months and, and we don't know exactly how long, but time with his disciples living for them, showing them, illustrating for them how to do ministry. Finally, in Mark chapter six, the Bible says this, that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, okay, tag, it's your turn. You've been watching me heal. You've been watching me preach. You've been watching me cast out demons. I am now sending you out two by two, and I want you to go do the ministry. And so the Bible lets us know in Mark chapter six that the disciples went out without Jesus and they did preach. They did cast out the demons. They did heal. They did exactly what Jesus had been doing. They were using the same spiritual power that he had been using. And so at the end of that chapter, they all come back together. And you would think that all get back together and they're bragging on everything they do that one of the disciples looked and said, Oh my goodness, you should have seen it. I walked into that town and there were some people there that had demons. And I prayed just like Jesus did and cast out those demons and the demons fled. And then another disciple probably popped up, popped up and said, no, no. Well, let me tell you about my story. Two people came and they couldn't even walk. People had to carry them into what I was preaching. And when the, I prayed for them, they just stood up and walked just like when Jesus would pray for people. And then I'm guessing another disciple said, well, let me tell you my story. You know, I kind of stuttered and I don't talk real well with that one moment when I opened my mouth to preach what Jesus taught us about his, his father, God in heaven. It was like some speech orator came out and I said things that I didn't even know were happening in my head. And they came out and I preached an amazing sermon and they probably all looked around each other going, wow, let's get a quick bite of tea and let's go do it again tomorrow. But that's not how Jesus responded. Look with me in verse 30 of chapter six. The apostles returned to Jesus and from their ministry tour, and they told him all they had done and all they had taught. And then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. I think rest a while You've got to save the whole world, Jesus. we got, we, got to, we got to take your, your message to everybody. But he looked at his disciples and said, after this intense time of ministry, after this burden that you've been carrying, I need us to go away and rest for a while. And he said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. And so they left by boat to a quiet place where they could be alone. Going back to Elijah, here's what I think. Elijah never took time to rest. He never took time to reconnect with God. Yes, he had been trusting in God. Yes, he had been putting his faith in God, but you can put so much trust and faith in God that it begins to pleat you spiritually and he never took the time to stop, to rest and be recharged by God. In fact, let's look and see what else happens in 1 um, Kings chapter 19. It says this about Elijah. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank and he lay back down again. And then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and he food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. So finally he got some food, he got some sleep, but most of all, Elijah found a space to reconnect with God. Because when he woke up, there was no food when he lay down and there was an angel that was taking care of him. That was God's way of coming and re-nourishing and reconnecting with him. He needed to be reminded, Elijah needed to be reminded that he was not God. He needed to be reminded that his job in life was to partner with God, not to pry away the burden from God and carry it himself. And so we hear this story. I'm going, oh, hang, hang on a second. I know how to sleep. I know how to eat. But how do you find this space to reconnect with God? How do you slow down life enough to really go, okay, God, here I am. Remind me, show me, push me, charge me that you're God and I'm not. Let me keep reading the story because I think Elijah's story is going to help us know how to find that space. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, here's what it says. Talking about Elijah still. There he came to a cave where he spent the night, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Can we just make a note here? God knew exactly what he's doing there. Elijah was asked a question by God just so Elijah would recognize what he was doing there. And the next thing they said, Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They killed every one of your prophets. And then he says "As I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. Do you notice something about what Elijah and how he responded? It was full of I, 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 I. Elijah was still in the place that he hadn't Put back what he pried from God he was still in the place that he forgot that he was supposed to partner with God and he had taken it all on himself there's no wonder that he sat down underneath the tree in the very beginning of our story and through the fit and had his meltdown when you carry the weight of God's problems on our shoulders we will have a meltdown every single day and I wonder how many of us in our own spiritual lives that we are so pried away from God, the responsibility that he carries. We've taken the burdens that we're supposed to partner with him, but we put so much pressure and so much worry and so much stress on ourselves that we've taken it away from him. And that's why we're exhausted. That's why we throw our hands up some days and going, God, I can't go on any longer like this. Would you just take me home? This is what Elijah is told by God next. God says, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not even in the fire. So here's Elijah going, okay, God, reconnect me with you. Show me, take this from me. And all these amazing physical, natural acts take place, but God's not found in those. You see, I think sometimes here's what happens to us, that we only look for God in the big miraculous things. We're going, God, I've been praying for so long for my health. I've been praying so long for my son or daughter. I've been praying for all these. Where's the big mighty acts that you're going to do? And we don't see it because we're only looking for these humongous, miraculous moments in life. And then we get frustrated because we're going, God, where are you? How come this thing is not happening? But look what happens next. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. See, here's what's taking place next. God is showing up, but he didn't show up in the fire. He didn't show up in the earthquake. He didn't show up in the storm. He showed up in a whisper. And the Bible says that Elijah took a cloak, his coat, his outer garment, and he wrapped around his face. And the reason he did that is because it shows us that Elijah recognized that whisper was God. Because it was known in the Old Testament days that a man couldn't stand before God, and so you to turn your head, and so Elijah put the cloak over his face so he would not be face-to-face in God's presence. Don't you find it interesting that God wasn't in the earthquake He wasn't in the storm. He wasn't in the fire. He was in a whisper. And do you know where the most convenient, the best times that you find and hear a whisper? It's during the rest. See, we're busy doing everything. We're talking to people. We're working for Jesus. It's hard to hear somebody whisper. It takes you stopping and slowing down to hear the whisper. And just like Elijah had disconnected from God, even in spiritual busyness, even in good things for God, he had still missed God, the relationship in the process. And God is having to bring all this to him and finally say, "Elijah, let me whisper in your ear. Let me draw near to you as you sit still and as you rest." And listen to me, churches. We've talked about the power found in prayer. It is found in the request. When we have God centered lives that lead to God centered prayers, that's the beginning of having powerful prayers because we're learning to pray the heart of God, not the desires of our own life. And when you and I deepen our faith and we learn to wait on God, and in that waiting, we realize He's not trying to just put us off, He's really trying to grow us spiritually deep in our faith. And then we learn the fight. The fight is not always the spiritual warfare that we see, it's a spiritual warfare taking place in our hearts to give all of our hearts to God. That's all what it means to become powerful prayers for people, for God. But if we miss the rest, we will miss God. Because it's in the rest that we reconnect with God and learn and tune ourselves to hear His voice, to know what the next request should be. So here's my question for us: Are you resting? Are you slowing down? And can we all just confess this, that sometimes the institution of the church can be the biggest robber of rest that we know of? Because I need to go to this group and this committee, I gotta go over here and I got go over here, and all that's good, but we're so busy doing the things of God that we miss God in the process. And we miss the rest. And when we miss the rest, we don't hear the whisper. And when we don't hear the whisper, we begin taking things in our own hands, and doing it our own power. So you and I are called by God to rest. It's part of the cycle, it's part of the rhythm of prayer that we request, we wait, we fight, and then we rest. So I often have people ask me, well, Keith, how do you rest with God? That's, that's difficult, right? Because the minute we sit down to rest and whisper and hear the whisper of God, we hear all these other voices and, and things, and we're drawn over here and drawn over here. And I think it's one of the hardest spiritual disciplines in our life is to learn to rest with God. And so the question is, how do you learn to rest? How do you rest so you can hear the whisper? Well, I've got some good news and I got some bad news for you, okay? Here's the bad news. I don't know how to tell you to do it, okay? Now, the good news is I can share with you how I do it, but here's what I know about whispers from God. They may look different for each of us. Just because I rest a certain way and I hear the voice of God and the whisper of God doesn't mean it's gonna be the same thing for you. But this morning, as we close, allow me just to take a few minutes and let me share with you how I hear the whisper, how I rest with God. Now, please do not write this down. This is the best way because the pastor does it this way, okay? I'm human just like you. This is just Keith's way. But this whisper and rest can sound so just organic, so out there that some people have a hard time like, I don't even know how to take the first step to do it. So allow me to just take a few minutes and share with you how I do it. If you're taking notes, here's the first one on there. The first thing I do when I rest and just hear the whisper of God is I simply just get away. And when I say get away, I don't mean I get in my car and have to take a three-week pilgrimage somewhere and, you know, some holy land somewhere. No, no. I get away somewhere in my own routine. For me and my house, we moved into it. I have an office. And when I go spend time with God in the morning, I go there early in the morning and that's where I get away. I sit down at my desk and there's something about going to the same place that helps me get away. I've learned just the spiritual disciplines. There is an emotional, spiritual trigger if you can t- teach yourself just to go to the same place every day that helps you get away. Now, I sit down at my desk. Let me tell you what takes place at this desk. That's where God and I spend to get time together. But within 30 minutes after that, that's when I'm working on my sermon every morning, Monday through Wednesday at the house. And so I sit down, and I have my Bible, and I have my computer over here, and there is a temptation to open the computer and start working on my sermon. But guess What? I can be doing things for God, but still miss God in the process. And so I try to discipline myself that I don't open my work computer to start working on sermon until God has closed my life with what he wants to tell me. And it's my place. In fact, I have a, again, this is just how Keith does it, right? Okay, so you don't have to do it this way. I get up in the morning when I do this, my time with God, and I'm in my pajamas, I'm in my whatever I sleep in, I sit down there. When I'm finished there, then I go take a shower and I come back to the office and that's when it's time to work. But there's even something about my place getting away with God has to change even physically for me so I can stay focused on him. And then the second thing I do, once I get away, the second thing I do is I just try to be still. Psalms 46.10 says this, be still and know that I'm God. You know where most people mess up I found on this point? Like, okay, God, I heard Pastor Keith. I'm going to start trying to be still. I'm setting my alarm tomorrow. I'm going to be still before you for 60 minutes, God. That's the least I can do for you. I'll be still and just sit in your presence for 60 minutes. If you hit the 60-minute mark, can you come tell me? Because I've never hit that in my life. I'm good for about 60 seconds sometimes of being still. I'm good for three minutes of being still sometimes. And here's the mistake that people make. You have this idea, expectations, and you compare yourself to what you think other people are doing. For many in this room, if we would just sit still with God for a minute, I think a good big smile would come on God's face up in heaven. He's going, whew, that was good. Let's do it again tomorrow. So simply just be still before God. Now for me to be still, I need a little just external noise. And so I put some worship music on. It just helps me kind of be focused on God. Some people just like it to be completely silent and be still. Whatever it takes you to kind of block out the world and focus on God. Here's number three I use a journal. Okay, remember, this is only Keith's way of doing it. Okay, there's no expectation. I'm not more spiritual. But for me, if I don't write some things down, I get my mind just goes everywhere. And so then I pull out, in fact, when I use a journal, here's what mine looks like. I think we have a picture of it. I have a spiral notebook, a little half-sheep spiral notebook, and I always use a red pen and a blue pen. And I might have shared this with you before, and here's how it works for me. The blue pen, I'm always writing what I'm talking to God about. So every morning on my journal, you'll see it up there. I'll put the date, and then I'll put, good morning, Lord. There's some mornings that says, good Lord, it's morning, but that's how I start every day. Good morning, Lord. And then I just write whatever I'm thinking. I had a great time, had family come in yesterday. We had a great time. Jesus, thank you for that. Or it's Sunday. And so I pray for the service, but I'm writing what I write, what I'm thinking for me. Then I use my red pen because then I open up scripture and I start reading and I only write in red pen what God is showing me in his scripture. So for my own personal journal, the only thing you'll see in red is scripture. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit might impress me on something, but it could also be the pizza I ate last night. So I know this. If I write scripture, it's exactly from God. Many times my journal is only that much. So I'm not writing pages and pages and pages, but I know for me, when I slow down enough and I write and I journal, it is God saying, Keith, I'm taking over. I'm refilling you. I'm allowing you to rest. And then the fourth thing on there, and I just mentioned it. I read scripture. So it's me talking to God, God talking to me. I'm reading scripture, looking to see what he's saying to me. And you know how long I spend doing this every day? Some days, five minutes. Some days, 10 minutes. There's some days it's really good and they are far and few between, but I might spend 25 or 30 minutes. It's not the quantity of time. It's the quality of time. And it's when I'm reconnecting with God. It is when I'm resting in his presence and listening to him that I know I am being recharged and refocused to know that God is in charge and I'm not. And I believe with all my heart, it is in this rhythm of rest that allows my prayers to be more powerful, not because Keith prayed them, but it's in this rhythm of rest that I'm hearing and learning and responding to what God is saying to me, and I'm simply praying his prayers. So the rhythm of prayer, the request, the wait, the fight, and the rest. And my prayer is this church is that we would become a church that individually and corporately learns to pray powerfully. Not for our own benefit, but for the glory of God. And those rhythms will help us with that. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Elijah. Thank you that you gave us an example that is so bigger than life in his faith, yet so down to earth in his faith. God, thank you that you give us people in the Bible that we can look and try to exemplify our life, but yet at the same time, they're not so perfect that we can never reach what they're doing. So thank you for the study, for the look, for the life of Elijah. And I pray this for us, Jesus, that we would become powerful prayer warriors. Not powerful so we get what we want, God, but powerful that we can walk and we can live in who you've made us to be. And may we be a part of the kingdom in that way. God, I pray this. I pray for every single person here that you would give them rest. Would you allow them to be refocused and renewed and recharged by you? God, would you lead us not to carry all the burdens, but to give those burdens to you? And so we pray that we'd be more like you. And we pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.